0: The capital is in an uproar. A day or two ago, a man rode into the city to the acclaim of the crowds. He entered the temple and drove out the merchants and the money changers. When the chief priests and the elders demanded to know who gave him the authority, he asked them a question they dare not answer. He proceeded to tell a series of stories that were obviously directed at the Jewish leaders. He must be stopped. But how? The people are eagerly listening to him. They think he's a prophet. If the leaders try to arrest Jesus. How will the crowd react? So they come up with a different strategy. They try to discredit Jesus. They make three attempts in this chapter. To put Jesus to the test. First the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent a delegation to ask him a question. Did they think perhaps if they went themselves, he would recognize them beyond his guard? Is the flattery with which he's greeted an attempt to allay his suspicions? Or is it a way of trying to make sure he doesn't evade the question? This delegation's a strange mixture. Disciples of the Pharisees and Herodians don't have much in common apart from their hostility to Jesus. The Pharisees, they're the conservative Jews. They hate the pagan Romans, anything to do with them. But the Herodians are the people who support King Herod, who owes his position to Rome. It's rather as if the Tories and the SNP went together to ask what do you think of the Brexit deal? The question they ask is just as controversial, just as divisive. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The tax in, in they're considering is the poll tax, paid directly to Rome. And I think this is a great way to trap Jesus. He's got to answer yes or no. If he says yes, then he's going to lose favour with many of the Jews. Not only the zealots and the Pharisees, every devout, freedom-loving Jew will object. But if he says no, then they can report him to the Roman authorities as a troublemaker, as a rebel. Luke's account tells us that they sent spies who pretended to be sincere, they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. That's the aim in what they're saying. But they don't fool Jesus. He's aware of their malice. He says, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites, you mask wearers? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius, a coin that was specially minted for the poll tax. On one side, it had the image of the emperor, an inscription describing him as the son of a god. On the other side, he's described as the highest priest, perhaps God and high priest. Now, what's Jesus do when he asks for this coin? He's pointing out that for all their objections to Rome, they're using these Roman coins. They can produce one. And in the temple of all places. As Jesus holds up the denarius, he's asking in effect, what are you doing with pagan money in God's holy temple? How is it you hold in your holy hands idolatrous images with blasphemous inscriptions? And bear in mind that out of deference to Jewish susceptibilities, there were special coins minted without those features. They could be used for normal commerce. So no Jew actually needed to handle the denarius except to pay his tax. And Jesus drives home his point. He says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Obviously, there's only one answer, it's Caesar's. And then Jesus answers their question. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The first part of that answer effectively does say, yes, pay your tax. The Roman Empire provides water, sanitation, roads, law and order, police protection. And for all this, what they ask is one coin a year, an average day's wages. Jesus wasn't a political revolutionary. He recognized the legitimacy of human government, even pagan government, even a government that was in control without the will of the people. But he also recognized its limitations. Notice what he says, render to Caesars the things that are Caesars. Not everything belongs to Caesar. Not everything is to be given to him. When the emperor claims divine honor, that should not be given to him. This is something we need to remember in our day. The state tries to extend its diktats into more and more areas of our lives. No human government has unlimited authority. I'm reminded of Andrew Melville's words to King James. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the head of this commonwealth. And there is Christ Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject James VI is and of whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. Most of our politicians today aren't even members of the church. They certainly have no authority over it. No government has unlimited authority. We also need to remember the final part of Jesus' answer. Render to God the things that are God's. remember what Jesus is saying here. He's telling people to render to Caesar that coin which has Caesar's image on it. In the same way, we're to render to God what has his image on it. What's that? Ourselves. As human beings made in God's image. He must receive all our glory, gratitude, service. That includes the way we submit to the legitimate demands of human government, even when we don't like them or agree with them. But it's not that there are two separate spheres. One belongs to Caesar, another to God. The sphere of which Caesar has legitimate authority is a part of the whole that belongs to God. God's realm encompasses Caesar's. We're called to give back to God in Caesar's realm, as well as everywhere else. With regard to taxes, giving to God means giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But Caesar's commands are not always compatible with God's. They're in times when giving back to God what is his it means we can't give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Peter laid down the same principle when he told the high priest, we must obey God rather than men. How do the questioners respond to this answer? When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. If that's what we do, we've missed the point. Jesus doesn't give this answer to, wow, that was clever he's calling us not to leave him not to go away but to cling to him to follow him even in the political sphere calling us to worship to give god his glory that's the first attack and now a second group approaches jesus <clears throat> these are the sadducees who say that there is no resurrection They believe that soul and body both perish at death. Now the Pharisees would point to passages like Daniel 12.2, Isaiah 26.19 as evidence for a resurrection. But the Sadducees would only base their teaching on the books of Moses. And so their question naturally is based on the law of Moses. Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. They're referring to the law in Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. The practice ensures that the property would remain within the family. The dead brother's name would be carried forward for posterity. Remember, this is the land which God had given to the Israelites to be divided between them in the way that he had allocated. Allocated. Well, the South Easties don't believe in the resurrection. They come up with an unlikely scenario, which is designed to make belief in the resurrection look ridiculous. A man, sorry, a woman, marries seven brothers in turn. So which one is she married to in the resurrection? Of course, that's overkill. They only need two brothers to make this point, don't they? They make, want to make it seem as ridiculous as possible. Why do they ask that question? Do you think there's a possibility Jesus might side with them against the Pharisees? Are they hoping he'll be unable to give them an answer and so lose face with the crowds? It's perhaps more likely. Have they heard what Jesus said to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Whatever the reason for their question, they fail. Jesus is very blunt with them. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Ouch. So what's wrong with this carefully constructed scenario? It limits the power of God. It assumes the resurrection is just basically a rerun of this life. The Sadducees can't imagine a world where marriage has reached its climax in something else, something greater. But Jesus says in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Incidentally, that's another dig at the Pharisees. They didn't believe in angels either. Now for the Sadducees, of course, this is a trick question. For many people, it's a real issue because they have been married more than once. My own father, for example. William Carey was married three times. Sorry to imagine a certain embarrassment in the resurrection. Oh, hello, Dorothy. This is Charlotte. And Grace. No. We need to understand the answer that Jesus gives. Why is there no marriage in the resurrection? When it's such an important part of this life. Well think about the three reasons for marriage given in the Anglican Book of Prayer. First, there's a procreation of children. Where there's no death, there's no need for children to replenish the human race. Second, it's a remedy for sin to avoid fornication. But in the resurrection, there'll be no temptation to sin. A third, perhaps primarily, Marriage is given for mutual companionship, for help and comfort. It's not good that the man should be alone. There'll be no loneliness in the resurrection. The best earthly companionship will be surpassed. It's not simply that marriage is abolished and you're left with nothing. It's replaced with something greater, something better, something deeper. You don't understand the power of God. But he's not content merely to correct the Sadducees' idea of what resurrection might be like. He strikes at the core of their scepticism. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? that What was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. God is not a God of graves and ghosts, but God of the living. If he's God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the days of Moses, then he must still be alive today. You see what Jesus does here? He goes to that part of scripture which they accept, which they think would involve a contradiction if you had a resurrection because you'd have one rule about a woman not being married to more than one person and yet she'd have to be. He goes to the part of scripture they accept and he preaches the resurrection from it. And more than that, he goes to the very words of God himself as he spoke to Moses at the burning bush. What higher authority could there be? When God spoke those words to Moses The patriarchs had been dead for centuries. It was on the basis of his covenant relationship with them that he was sending Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. God is the eternal God of the covenant. Could this living, saving, covenant-keeping God establish a relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob only to allow it to be terminated by death? To be the God of implies a caring, protecting relationship, which is as permanent as the living God who makes it. God is not limited by the grave. His faithfulness does not end when his people die. Of course, this is not just a theological debating point. This is the heart of the Christian hope. We live in a society that seems to have as its ultimate goal stopping people from dying. But we know that death is not the end. It's something horrible. It is in a very real sense unnatural. It's the last enemy. But for the Christian, it's a defeated foe. Christ has conquered death as we were singing at the beginning of the service. Christ has conquered death and his resurrection guarantees ours. In resurrection bodies like Jesus' very own we'll rise to meet our Saviour with joy around his throne. We'll marvel at the mercy that bids poor sinners come be welcomed at his table and share his heavenly home. O joy of resurrection all sin and sorrow past, to see the face of Jesus, to be like Him at last, made perfect in His image, complete in Christ the Son, in resurrection glory, we'll share the life He won. That is the prospect that lies ahead for the Christian. Not a body rotting in a grave and a spirit ceasing to exist. But a new life. An everlasting life. Jesus' answer must have given the Pharisees some satisfaction. Jesus had silenced their great rivals. But that also increased Jesus' influence with the crowds, which was the opposite of what they wanted. And so they gathered together to try to find another way to attack Jesus. I think we're intended to hear an echo there of Psalm 2, where the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed. And they find an expert in the Jewish law to ask a question to test Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? When you read Mark's account of this, you sense that this man has been impressed by what he's heard from Jesus. He's even more impressed by Jesus' answer to his question. So although he is testing Jesus, he's perhaps at least somewhat sympathetic to him. Perhaps that makes him all the more useful to the Pharisees as they try to trap Jesus. Because this is a genuine question from a genuine questioner. How's he going to answer it? What makes it a trap? Well, perhaps the Pharisees hope this lawyer will be able to handle the law better than Jesus can. If Jesus hesitates, if he's not sure of the answer, and he's not the expert teacher he appears to be. And if he do, doesn't choose his words carefully, maybe he'll suggest he's dismissing part of the law. And they can say, ah, but all the law is binding. Or perhaps the question should be phrased as, what kind of commandment is great in the law? Is it the ones about circumcision or the Sabbath laws? What about the laws of sacrifice or the ones with the severest penalties for disobeying them? Whatever answer Jesus gives, some of the Jews will disagree. Again, perhaps an analogy will help. Suppose that by the time the Scottish elections are due in May, COVID is under control. And imagine the interviewer asking a politician, what should be the main priority of the new government? What will he say? Financial recovery? Education? Strengthening the NHS? Scottish independence? Whatever answer the politician gives, he's going to displease a large part of his audience. Which is the greatest commandment? It's a question that should concern us too. What's God's first priority for us? Is it the laws dealing with religious rituals? The commands dealing with other people? What matters most? Jesus answers by quoting directly from Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. That's what matters most. Every part of your being, every part of your life, are to be given wholly to God. That law requires comprehensive, universal, undiluted love for God with every ounce of your being. But Jesus isn't finished. He says a second commandment, which is like the first, almost on a par with it. You can't separate one from the other. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Here Jesus is quoting Leviticus 29. What does it mean to love your neighbour? If you look up the context of that quotation, that commandment in Leviticus 29, you see it worked out in various detailed instructions. Loving your neighbour requires generosity, integrity, care for the weak, compassion for the disabled, justice, truthfulness, peaceableness, goodwill. Paul quotes the command in Romans 13 and he says, Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. The commandments are like fences that protect our neighbour from being damaged by our actions. He quotes it again in Galatians 5. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. There's a basic attitude to apply to your relationships to other people. Through love... Serve one another. Love, says Francis Schaeffer, is the mark of the Christian. It's the final apologetic. The evidence that we are truly Christians. And that Christianity is true. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Not just the law, which is what he asked about. But the prophets as well hang from these two commands. It's not just a debating point. It's what God requires of us. After all, if those are the greatest commandments, then failing to keep them must be the greatest sins. How do you measure up? Don't go away from here in despair because you know you failed to keep those commands. Don't go away crushed by your inadequacy. Go away thinking of Jesus. Think of how he perfectly kept those commandments all of the time. Was there ever any portion of Jesus' heart that was not completely in love with the Father? He kept the great commandment perfectly every second of his life. He loved the Father with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. He perfectly loved his neighbor. He cared for the weak. He had compassion on the sick and the disabled. He was utterly truthful and honest. His whole life was one of service to others, culminating in that sacrifice of the cross where he gave his life for his people. Just look to him as your example. This is what true love for God and your neighbour looks like, the way Jesus lived. But don't only think of him as your example. Remember, he paid the penalty his people deserved. His perfect life is credited to their account. You're not accepted by God because you've loved God and your neighbour as you should. You're accepted by God if you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your saviour. As one who's perfectly kept God's commandments for you and paid the penalty for your sin. So I say don't despair because you know that you've failed. But come to him. Acknowledge that sin and failure. Ask him to forgive and cleanse you. And then knowing that he has done that, seek by his help to live such a life, imitating him, loving God, loving your neighbor. Who is this Jesus? That's the question these questioners must have been asking. They marvelled at his answers. They were astonished at his teaching. They haven't truly understood who he is. And so Jesus begins to ask his own questions. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Simple question. Easy answer. They said to him, the son of David. David. Every Jew knew about God's promise to David that Messiah would come from his line. Just flip back a page or two in your Bible. What had happened the day or two before? Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy of their king coming to them. What did the crowd shouted? Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus reminding the Pharisees, He is the Son of David. But He wants them to think more deeply about who Messiah is. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his Son? David wrote Psalm 110. He was inspired by the spirit to write it. The psalm is about the Messiah, who is David's son. Yet David calls his own son, my Lord. What does that mean? Well, it must mean in some sense, in some way, the Messiah is greater than David. See, the point Jesus is making is that this title, Son of David, which he's been given by the crowd, is inadequate, maybe even misleading, as a guide to the nature of his mission. He's not just a successor, a replica of David. He's David's Lord. He has an authority that's far higher than that of a mere earthly national throne. As Paul later explains to the Romans, he was descended from David according to the flesh. He was the son of David. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In looking for an earthly king to throw off the yoke of Rome, the Jews missed the far greater work that Jesus came to do. To defeat the devil, to free his people from slavery to sin. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. His opponents have been silenced. Pause for a moment, think about what we have seen in this passage. Jesus has been tested in three different areas. He's been questioned about politics, his attitude to earthly authority. He's been asked a theological question. He's been tested on practical daily living in terms of the commandments that God has given. In every area, he's confounded his critics. He's shown that as Messiah, he is not just the son of David, but David's Lord. What does that mean for us? It means that we have a Lord worth loving worth serving, a Lord who can be trusted, a Lord we can follow in every area of our lives, politics, family, whatever it may be, knowing that he is fully in control, fully understanding, fully able to advise and direct. A God, a Lord, truly Lord of all, who must be our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God we thank you for this passage for the way it shows us who Jesus was who Jesus is the one who is Lord of all Lord over every human authority Lord able to defeat every kind of attack from every quarter the Lord who deserves our loyalty our service our obedience, help us to give him that, to give him his due, to worship him as our Lord and our God, we ask in his name, Amen.